This is Come and See from St. Andrew's Anglican Church. For March 11, 2012, the Gospel is taken from the book of John, chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. The message is by Father Ron Baird. If you've been working at your Latin discipline, you probably found that by now that's sort of become a routine to give up what you've given up or, you know, the disciplines that you've had. It's probably become much easier to follow because after about three weeks, then it, the habit um, sort of sets in. And so today we need to shift gears a little bit, uh, not to do away with that, but to broaden it, if you will. In today's gospel lesson, we have the lesson most people know of Jesus driving the money changers from the temple. I have to tell you, the money changers got bad press on that one um, because he, that wasn't the only thing he drove out of the temple. <laughs> I mean, he drove out the sheep and the goats and the cattle and the, and the doves and, and everything, and, but only the money changers get remembered. The, the official name of it is called the purification of the temple. And what I want us to do is take a look at that, not from the eyes of of. Christians later for a moment, but rather in what that looked like to the people who were doing it, to the people who were exchanging the money, the people who were selling the, the goats or the lambs, the people who were selling the, the doves. They're not really doves, by the way, they're pigeons. But, um, but <laughs> If uh, you followed it all with our Wednesday night Bible study things that we're doing, the Lenten program, or if you followed in the sheets, you've uh, probably recognized some of these things. Because whenever um, a sacrifice was required of someone, um, it had to be unblemished, a lamb, uh, if you were poor, a turtle dove for certain uh, types of things, pigeons. Um, sometimes it was a, a bull or a goat. It, it all depended on your your um, status in society and what the sin was. And there were different things that were required for different sins. And so they would have to go to the priest and present it. But always, the, whatever offering was brought, it had to be what they called unblemished, which means that it, it had no fault. And this presented a problem for a lot of people because if you lived in northern Galilee, it was a long way to convince two pigeons to travel. Um, you know, to take a bull or a goat or sheep all that way, and it, it wasn't an easy trip. Um, it's a fairly arid climate, fairly hot. I mean, it was just very difficult for people to bring their own. And what happens if their particular flock at that time doesn't have any unblemished lambs? And it, what do you do then? And so what had happened was, was that they had set up the system whereby you didn't have to bring all that with you you could purchase those items when you got to Jerusalem, which made life much more convenient for people. But in order for it to remain unblemished, the, the, the turtle doves or the bulls or goats or whatever, um, there was one problem, and that's the money that you used to purchase them. The, the common currency of the day was not um, the Hebrew money uh, of shekels. That wasn't used in everyday commerce. It was denarii, which were Greek in origin, and the Romans used that throughout the world. And so you couldn't purchase a, a sacrificial offering with a pagan um, coin, and that presented difficulty. So not having, you know, change machines like we have at arcades and things, 
What they did was they would go in, there would be these people who are there, and you would give them a denarii, and they would give you the equivalent amount in shekels uh, minus a fee um, so that you could go purchase um, an unblemished offering uh, to take to the priest. So they were really providing a service. Now, you might say, well, yeah, but they shouldn't have been profiting off of that, but but that was their living. I mean, that was how they survived. What would you do if they didn't do it? Because then you'd have to find an unblemished thing and bring it all down. And so it was part of the requirement for all Jews to make these sacrifices or else they would be unclean and outside of the faith. And you weren't allowed to associate with unclean people. So you would essentially be ostracized. So it really was very necessary uh, to do. And, and then there were people there selling the pigeons. That had been a job, wouldn't it? What do you do? You chase down pigeons. And you put them all in a cage so that when people come by them. But, and, and, you know, the bulls and the goats and so on and so forth. And Jesus comes into this, seeing this, and looks at it and goes into this sort of righteous rage. It says that he made a whip of cords. A whip of cords is he took a lot of long leather strips and he braided them. And in order for them to hold together, he would tie knots in them. Um, to hold it together, and he would go around and he would slap the you know the ox or the or the lamb or the goat on the rear. You know what happens when you do that? You know, they leave. <laughs> I mean, this is not a good time at all. I mean, they're all gone. He'd knock over the cages that held the the turtle doves, let all of them fly off. He went over to the money changers and just took the table and just turned it all over and said, "You know, you have turned my father's house into a den of thieves." When it should be a house of prayer. Now imagine what that would be like if that was you. Because you're thinking, wait a minute. (laughs) I'm trying to help people here. You know, I'm trying to enable them to come and worship the way God requires. Why in the world would this be a problem? Why should people get upset about that? All we do is make it a little more convenient for the people who have to come and do this, which is highly appropriate. And we're not charging exorbitant rates. I mean, we're not gouging people. We're just trying to make a living, you know, middle-class living off of doing this. And this guy comes in, and when you look at it that way, all of a sudden you begin to go, well, what is Jesus about? I mean, why, why is he doing this? What is going on? And it has to do with a different kind of sin. The people who were there did not know that they were sinning. Matter of fact, if anything, they thought they were being the opposite. They worked for the church, for crying out loud. How could they be sinners, right? Um, and they were just trying to help people. And imagine what the people who'd come to make their sacrifices that day thought. Kind of blew that trip. Now think about that. You walked the equivalent of northern New Jersey down to Trenton, you know, to, to make a sacrifice, and some guy comes in and just totally tears the place apart. And you probably wouldn't be real happy with him either, would you? And so here they are, you know, confronted with this thing. What is this prophet trying to tell us? What is he trying to say? Why is this significant? And what it really has to do with is what sin was really going on. Because you see, the sin they were committing was not known to them. They thought they were doing the right thing. But instead, what they had done is turn God's worship into commerce. 
They never planned it that way. They didn't even think of it that way. But that was what they did. They turned it into commerce. They turned it into, you know, ways to make a living. Churches still do that today. We do it differently. In the Middle Ages, we moved it to indulgences and things like that. Built a lot of nice cathedrals that way, though. Um, the most of them are still standing up, too. It's kind of neat. Today, we tend to more that if you will send in your offering, if you're even you know, on, the, on the very evangelical end of things, then uh, uh, we will pray for you and you'll get a blessing out of it. Or um, in more mainline churches, you know, we, a lot of churches will come out and say, you, know, you should tithe because you, know, you owe that to God, meaning put it in the collection basket to come forward. And it's one of the reasons why I always tell people tithing has nothing to do with church fundraising. Um, it's a spiritual thing, not a church thing thing. Church fundraising has to do with, are we really doing God's work, and is God going to show you that so that you would, and tell you to support it or not? That's up to him, not us. And so, oftentimes, though, we, like the people then, would prefer to have it convenient, wouldn't we? I mean, we'd like to have church to be convenient. We'd like church to be the style we like or the music we like. We like church to be at the time we like. We like church to be uh, either not too hot or not too cold, depending on which one you are. And, and then people will want you to either turn up the heat or turn down the heat, depending on who you are. What I like is when I have somebody from both sides tell me in, in the middle of it, can you turn the heat up? It's cold in here. And then I'll walk toward and somebody say, can you turn the heat down? It's hot in here. And I go, oh boy. <laughs> um, but, but we do. We want it to be convenient, don't we? I mean, if I told you today, we're going to shift all the services around. This service is now going to be held at 8 o'clock. And the 8 o'clock service is going to be held at 11. 11 is going to be held at 9.30. Believe me, you would find out that you'd be going, what? <laughs> and, and why? Why would it be a bother to you? Hmm? It'd mess up your plans, wouldn't it? I mean, that's the problem. It messes up our plans. And we've forgotten that worship isn't about us, is it? It's about God. And it becomes easy for us to do it. But, but it's not just worship that we do it in. In today's psalm, we read that line, uh, Purge me from my secret sins. And so that's where the shift comes in. Is it Through this last half of Lent, I want to encourage you to begin to ask God to reveal to you what are those sins that you don't know that you're doing. Those are the hard ones, aren't they? I mean, how, if, if you don't know, what do you do? Matter of fact, a lot of people think, well, if I don't know, then I'm not guilty because I'm not culpable for something I don't know, which really kind of makes no sense. I mean, I guess you could say, you're not doing it maliciously if you don't know. But honestly, a two-year-old doesn't know a lot of things. A two-year-old doesn't know you shouldn't run out in the street when cars are coming. It doesn't really change the consequences. I mean, the same thing's going to happen either way. You can't say, well, it wasn't their fault. I mean, they didn't know. It wouldn't help, would it? I mean, it wouldn't do any good at all. And so... Sin can both be things that we do intentionally, that we commit, or things that we omit. They can be things that we do knowingly, 
There can be things that we don't do. Now, the knowing things sometimes can be tough, but by and large, they're easier. Because, I mean, it's like what a friend of mine always called the Big Ten. I mean, I mean, you kind of know if you murder somebody, you probably have stepped over the line. And God probably doesn't like that one. Or, or, or if you commit adultery, you know, that probably isn't a good thing. I mean, most of us, can, you know, if you don't uh, worship God, if you worship false gods, that probably most people go, yeah, that's not a good thing. Um, but what about those things that we don't know? What about those things that we've deluded ourselves into thinking aren't really sins? And so we end up doing them because it's okay to do them. Or what about the things that we don't do because we have convinced ourselves it's not okay to do them when in reality that we're worshiping the wrong thing? So that's what I want you to pray for for the next few weeks. It's for God to... Continue to work on the sins that you know, but, but ask God to reveal to you your secret sins so that he can purge them from you. Now, you might go, well, if they're secret, how am I going to know? Is it going to be like magic? You know, this list is going to fall from the sky or into my brain and I'll have it memorized? No, would that it were so, but it doesn't happen that way. It's going to require something from you. And so I'm going to give you homework this week. Now, whether or not you do it is up to you. Obviously, I'm not going to come by your house to make sure you're doing it. But if you really want God to reveal your secret sins to you, you have to begin to have to know what it is that he expects and something to measure against. And so I want you to look at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, and measure your life in accordance with that. Because that is Jesus pulling together and showing you What life is like in the kingdom of God? What does it look like if you live in the kingdom of God? That's the part if someone hits you on your right cheek, turn the other. Someone asks you for the shirt on your back, give them your coat too. Um, Don't worry about anything that you'll wear or eat or drink. You know, all those things that we don't think about very often. And what happens then is that what will be revealed to you is that you haven't fully grown in the stature of Christ. You truly haven't fully submitted yourself to God. Because all too often as Christians, if we've been doing it a long time, we kind of think, well, gee, I'm really not a bad person. I mean, I don't do, I, I mean, I haven't axe murdered anybody in ages. And uh, I mean, you know, I don't do terrible things. And occasionally my tongue slips a little and I say something untoward or whatever. But that's not that bad because everybody does it, right? So if everybody ran out in the street in front of cars, it wouldn't be that bad because everybody does it? I mean, that would make no sense, would it? You know, to, so what happens by this is we have a measurement then to say here is the holiness. Here is the perfection of what if we really submitted ourselves fully to the will of God of what it is that it would look like in our lives, how we would behave. You know, we wouldn't worry because we trust God. You know, there wouldn't be anything that would be a problem because we would know that God would take care of it. And when you read that, it's not for the purpose of beating yourself up. That's the other thing about it that you need to realize. As these things become clear to you that, gee, I'm not perfect. I'm hoping that won't be a surprise. Um, But it will tell you something about how much more surrender you have to do um, before the kingdom of God comes. Because God will not allow sin in heaven. 
I mean, it's just not going to be there. And to him, the fact that you didn't know it was sin doesn't matter. He's still not going to allow it to be there. Because do you want people who don't, you know, if I don't know that killing you is a sin, is it okay with you if I show up in heaven? I mean, of course not. If I take your money or take your livelihood or take your um, possessions or any of those things, if I, if I um, speak unkindly towards you or condescendingly towards you, would, do you want to live the rest of your life this way? For eternity? I mean, no. God's not going to let that in. So all of us eventually, if we're going to enter the kingdom of God, have to surrender everything that we are to him. And simply going, la, 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 I can't hear you, really doesn't help. And I know we'd like to be like the three monkeys, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. But that's not going to get us anywhere. Because the real goal is to become what God wants us to be. And, and that also is there. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's the goal. Now, you may find, whoa, I'm in trouble. Because I'm nowhere near that. Well, welcome to the club. It isn't meant to abuse you. It's meant to maybe lower your pride level a little. <laughs> so that you become a little less judgment, judgmental of the people around you. To realize that I haven't even taken the log out of my eye. What right do I have to take the speck out of my neighbor's eye? Oh, that's in there too, isn't it? You know, all of those things, it helps us to be aware of our need for submission, for surrender. And what you're going to need to do to overcome it, particularly the secret sins, is two things. One is you need to ask God, first of all, to reveal them to you. Take them slowly. You know, does... Do I do this? Does this describe me? Am I like this? And, and, and if you find that it is a secret sin, then you ask God to help take it away from you. Say, Lord, I want to give this to you. You know, I, I don't want this. I really don't want to worry anymore. I really don't want to be selfish anymore. I really don't want to be judgmental anymore. And, and I want to give this to you. Now... When you do those two things, something's going to happen. And that's that Satan will enter the picture. You won't see somebody with a pitchfork and horns running into your house, I don't think. But um, you might. Who knows? Um, It doesn't generally get as dramatic as the exorcist or things. But what does happen is these thoughts will start. Well, nobody can do that. Well, that probably doesn't mean that. Or, well, you're certainly never going to accomplish it. Because that's the way Satan really works. He doesn't like to make big flashy entrances. What he really likes to do is nitpick and wheedle at you. Um, Just to kind of twist the screw a little bit tighter. To make you a little more uncomfortable. To make you doubt yourself and doubt God a little bit more. There's a great book if you want to read it. C.S. Lewis, small book, it's not very big. Called The Screwtape Letters. Um, And it's only about a page and a half or so per chapter, so it's easy to read. But it's, it's premised on the fact that um, the devil has a nephew who's a demon who 